Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Sabang Bikwe Aditang After the Buddha was uh, enlightened, or after he uh, realized the Dhamma completely underneath the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, he spent a period of time, seven weeks, there both um, assessing what had happened, but also uh, in the process of deciding what to do. And the uh, phrase that we do to introduce the Dhamma talk actually comes from that period of time where traditionally when the Buddha was questioning whether anyone would understand the refined teachings of the Dhamma. Is it worth teaching? So worth going through all that effort. And the Brahma god, Sahampati, heard his uh, doubt, heard his little wavering, and immediately popped it down to the human realm and say, please, Venerable Sir, out of compassion, there are beings with little dust in their eyes. For their sake, please teach the Dhamma. So, he considered who would be most appropriate to teach to, who would be uh, amenable, who would have the potential to realize the Dhamma. After considering first, he then decided that, well, these five former disciples would be a good place to start his former teachers both having passed away and he knew that they were residing in the deer park in Saranath so he walked quite a long distance to get to the deer park and there preached or you know, taught the typically the, the first uh, two full Dhamma talks or Dhamma discourses And at that point, um, at that point, they went wandering a bit more, and the Buddha met um, a young man and a large group of his friends and through bringing them back down to the moment and uh, what was important in priorities he was able to to teach uh, that young man the Dhamma and then he brought all of his friends in as well and there was a total of 50 of them that was said and so by the the end of that that's when the Buddha gave uh, the instructions to those 
um, that small initial group, the five initial disciples, plus his, uh, these groups of friends. And, and that's where he said, um, all of those had already become fully enlightened, arhats. And at that point, he said, go out and teach the Dhamma, uh, each person going by a different route. Spread the word for the benefit of others. But the Buddha said, well, I've got a, a direction that I'm going to go. And the Buddha headed off to Gaya, which is not too far from Bodhgaya. And in Gaya, there was a group of three very famous teachers and all of their disciples. Uh, all of them were named Kasapa. And uh, the main uh, Kasapa, there were all three of them were brothers, and, and uh, the main teacher had 500 disciples approximately, and and his brother downriver had 300 disciples, and third brother, third Kasapa brother, had about 200 disciples. So all told, there were about a thousand disciples. And they all practiced the same type of austerities. They were uh, long, matted hair ascetics, apparently naked ascetics. You know, very, um, boy, you think the past week's been tough. Imagine <laughs> if you didn't have any clothes. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> And, um, but apparently they were all men. Yeah. So all these, na- all, all these naked ascetics dwelling together uh, with very long matted hair. And their practice was fire worship. And they had uh, you know, a certain practice that they did. And uh, fire worshiping, I think, had an uh, old... Uh, history and tradition in ancient India, probably from the reasons that you know, if you've got a fire going, you stare into it, you can get some pretty good concentration going. And once you start getting some good concentration going, some good samadhi going, then a lot of other things start to fall in place. And so around that, they would start to develop um, fire rituals, um, fire gods, and then worshiping the fire gods. So these 1,000 matted hair, naked ascetics were all fire worshippers. And so the Buddha rolled up and um, essentially said, well, do you mind if I um, practice here for a while? And he seemed like kind of a nice guy, to say the least. And so they said, yeah, no problem. And the Buddha spoke to the head Kasapa brother and tried to let him know that, uh, well, he had real he had discovered a path to understanding truth that maybe uh, this Kasapa teacher hadn't um, seen for himself yet. But this Kasapa teacher was already a very famous teacher in that area, well-known, well-respected, with a very large following. So the Buddha was very patient, being Buddha, and uh, he tried many things to to get Kasapa's attention. It's a bit of a long story, but one after another, he did little tricks with psychic powers, and each time uh, the Kasapa brother, he would say, "Oh, well, that's pretty impressive," but 
Well, you still don't understand the Dhamma as deeply as I do. And each time the Buddha would think, boy, this Kasapa is a bit thick. How am I going to get through to him? <laughs> and the Buddha even tried um, going into the sacred fire chamber. And they say, well, go in there if you want, but it's protected by a naga, a serpent. And um, it's a pretty powerful naga, and he doesn't like other people staying in his fire chamber. Buddha said, I'll deal with it. And so the Buddha went in there, was practicing, and the Naga saw that um, the Buddha was in there. So the Naga kind of spewed forth flames to try to singe this bald-headed intruder. And uh, so the Buddha burst forth in flames. And everything the Naga did, the Buddha sort of did one step better. Finally, the Naga had to uh, admit defeat. And during the night, all these other ascetics could see all these flames and heat coming out of the fire chamber. And they thought, oh, that poor ascetic Gotama. He was such a nice guy. But now he's being burnt to a crisp by our Naga. But in the morning, they were all very surprised. And he came walking out with his bowl. And they said, well, what happened with your uh, confrontation with the Naga? And uh, he took his ball, opened up his lid, and opened it up and said, well, there's your Naga. And there's a little snake inside his ball. And they're like, ah, yes, very impressive. But <laughs> you're not as enlightened as I am. And if, if you like uh, stories about psychic powers, this, uh, this story has a lot of psychic powers in it. And it's related uh, in full in the Vinaya texts. It's also in the suttas. So one time after another, the Buddha uh, tries to get through, and it's interesting in this in this story that he uses tactics that he normally doesn't use. Normally, he, he would not use a display of psychic powers, but in this circumstance, it seemed to be the thing that was going to try to get through to this crowd. But it wasn't working for a while until finally. Um, they were about to have one of their regular fire worships, and uh, and the Buddha used his powers to make sure that none of the fires would start. Well, 500 of these fires, none of them would start, and so there was a lot of um, consternation, worry. Not very auspicious if you're a fire worshiper and you can't get your fire to start. But in the end, then the Buddha um, was showed them and started their fires. And then, um, finally, Kasapa um, was coming around, and he said, "Well, maybe there's something to this Gotama. Maybe he really does know." something, maybe there is something special about him, maybe I should listen to what he has to say. And uh, the Buddha uh, taught him a bit of the Dhamma and was, he was very impressed. And then Kasapa went to his followers and said, well, actually, uh, I'm kind of inclined to uh, follow the Buddha now, what do you think? And they all said, we've been wanting to do that for a long time now. <laughs> <laughs> So, so they all uh, shaved off their long matted hair and threw it into the river, as well as their accoutrements for the fire worship, threw it into the river. And then it floated downstream and came to uh, the next 
uh, group of Kasapa, long matted hair, naked ascetics, and you know they saw all this, the hair floating by, and uh, a bit worried. And so they kind of went upstream and said, "What's happened? We saw your dreadlocks floating downstream. Is everything all right?" And uh, they related what had happened. And they said, well, if it's that, Im- if it's that impressive and uh, we trust your judgment, we'll shave off our hair too and throw our fire-worshipping stuff into the river. So they did that as well, and then it floated down to the next group. And, and uh, so eventually then all 1,000 of them shaved their hair and gathered around the Buddha. And at this point, the Buddha said, okay, now's the time uh, to give you a Dhamma teaching. And so he brought them up to Gaya Sisa, which was a, a hill just in that area. And they all sat around <clears throat> as he gave this talk. And he gave a talk that he thought they would be able to um, pick up the metaphor. Well, let me read you the English translation of this talk. I'll talk about it a bit. The Buddha began, he addresses them all as bhikkhus. And bhikkhus, all is burning. And what is the all that is burning? The eye is burning. Forms are burning. Eye consciousness is burning. Eye contact is burning, and also whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, that arises from eye contact, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, burning with the fire of hate, burning with the fire of delusion. I say that it is burning with birth, aging and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. The ear is burning. Sounds are burning. We went through and repeated that whole phrase again. The nose is burning. Odors are burning. The tongue is burning. Flavors are burning. The body is burning. And those things that we touch are burning. And the mind is burning. And ideas are burning. And mind consciousness is burning. Mind contact is burning. Also what is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, eh, that arises with mind contact as its condition, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. I say that it is burning with birth, aging and death, with sorrows, lamentations and pains, griefs and despairs. Mbhikkhu, when a noble follower who has heard the truth sees thus, he finds disenchantment in the eye, disenchantment with visible forms, disenchantment with eye consciousness, disenchantment with the eye contact and whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, and neither pleasant nor painful, but arises with eye contact. In that too he finds disenchantment. And the same... He continues on with the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. So, I'll stop there for a minute. So, in this Dhamma teaching, the Buddha goes right to the heart. Well, these are fire worshippers. Let's talk about what's really on fire. So, when we look at the world, our world, our reality, what does it come down to? What we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and cognize. Beyond that, if there is an objective reality, it's very difficult to, to know what it is, or if there is an objective reality beyond 
what we individually see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and cognize. And so the great majority, if not entirety, of what we experience as reality is actually experienced within our own perceptions. For example, when you get down to the senses and out there, for example, in seeing, the science tells us that maybe there's just electromagnetic energy, maybe waves, maybe particles, or a combination of the two. And there's not necessarily any color inherent in all of that, or any shape or form. But somehow, with when it passes through our eyes, and passes through our nervous system, and becomes interpreted somehow in our consciousness, then we get the whole arising of shape and form and color. And then, uh, based on that, we have perceptions of, well, this has this name, this is that name, and this is this color, and this is that. And then we carry it further into, oh, I like this and I don't like that. Based on that, usually that leads to, well, this is good and that's bad. And so we can create whole worlds just from very simple sense data. So the Buddha was pointing to this. You're saying that which is really on fire is when we perceive seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or cognizing with the defilements or the, the kilesas of raga, which is lust or passion, or dosa, which is anger and aversion, or moha, which is delusion. So you can see how, in very simple terms, if we see something, maybe an ordinary thing it may it may be something that someone else does that we don't like and somehow that lights a fire within us of dosa and it 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 burns it burns our jitta it burns our heart or if we see something that looks very attractive or someone that looks very attractive and that can also burn our heart so these are real like fires and then taken on a very subtle level even very ordinary sense contact can be a disturbance to the mind a disturbance to samadhi that's why in retreats we try to minimize the amount of sense impingement just to make it a bit easier for people So the Buddha very quickly just gives a summary of how consciousness arises and how feeling and craving and desire arises and how suffering arises out of the very basic sense data. For us to see something, for example, you have to have an eye that works. You have to have um, an eye, some something to see, and light to shine on it. But then you have also have to have consciousness. So when the three come together, then you have what's called seeing. In Pali, it's called pasa. In English, we usually translate it as contact. So like seeing contact or essentially it's just seeing okay? when you have when you have those three things eye form and eye consciousness then you've got seeing happening and then based on seeing you've got what's called Vedana which 
happens almost immediately afterwards. Uh, it's a very basic reaction to what we see, interpreting it. Or just It's before real interpretation. It's more just a reaction to it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, neither pleasant nor pleasant, unpleasant. So, for example, um, if you step into a, a nice warm shower on a cold day, generally there's going to be immediate reaction of pleasant. You don't have to think about it. Do I like hot showers or not? <laughs> it's like immediate reaction of pleasant. But if suddenly the hot water runs out, then and, and, and you're just immersed in cold water on a cold day, then you could uh, uh, that that feeling of an, can very quickly change to unpleasant. So Vedana is something that happens at all of the that sense organs, sense doors. We call them sense media. So Vedana that arises with seeing is then what we interpret either as beautiful or ugly. If we look at something and immediate uh, reaction is, oh, very pleasant. Yeah, okay, very pleasant. And then um, based further on that, we may get a perception of it as, oh, tree, etc. And then you can have further Vedana arising on that mental contact. Say, oh, I like trees. Oh, I like maple trees. Oh, I like calm, still lakes on a warm summer evening. And then with sounds, you get the, the, the same process happening. You know, with ear and waves and consciousness averted to that, and then you get hearing, which is the contact. And then based on hearing, you've got either a reaction, a very basic reaction of pleasantness or unpleasantness. Right? I mean, generally, you know, generally a sound like that would be considered unpleasant especially if you've been sitting meditation for a long time. <laughs> Whereas a sound of typically nails on a blackboard, you don't have to think about it. It tends to be one of those things that sounds unpleasant. Um, Smells, you know, uh, certain smells are, you know, roses tend to have a good reputation for smells. Um, toilets tend to have a bad <laughs> reputation for smells. Now, this is subject to personal interpretation as well, but as a general rule. Uh, tastes, of course, are, are very individual. Um, you know, if, if you have a good cook like we do, then almost everything you taste is right. You get positive Vedana from it. Well, it's very pleasant, more pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. Just being aware of pleasant. Um, but maybe if we go home and cook something ourselves, <laughs> and we, we have the feeling of, Oh, compared to the retreat, this is unpleasant. <laughs> or just comfort and discomfort is basically just Vedana based on the sense contact that we have in our bodies. Right? And you know, it's it's very basic. You know, if we're if we're warm enough, if we're warm and dry, it tends to feel comfortable. If we're cold and wet, it tends to feel uncomfortable. If we're sitting in samadhi, you know, it tends to feel comfortable. If someone um, knocks us on the head, then it tends to feel uncomfortable. And this is, you know, just very basic Vedana. 
that comes up. So Vedana is not something which is just physical sensations. Right? Physical sensations in Pali, that's, that's, um, that has one term, that, that's one thing. And then based on the, the sensations within the body, then whether it's considered like, pleasant or unpleasant, uh, painful or not, then that's the Vedana that arises from that. And then you have the same thing happening in the mind as well. So the mind is considered the sixth sense, not sixth sense in terms of some sort of intuition, mind reading, um, kind of esoteric thing, but but in a very basic way. The mind tends to um, act like a sense organ. Um, thoughts, thoughts arise. Thoughts or ideas are like um, are like external objects. Uh, like sounds or sights, and then uh, the mind, uh, the general sphere of the mind is it's like the sense organ which is aware of that, and then if there's mind consciousness, the three come together, and then you're aware of a thought or a mood or a feeling, you know, something that's happening in your mind. And then when something arises in our mind, there can be a very basic reaction to that, the Vedana of pleasant or unpleasant, and then with each elaboration of thought, the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant might get stronger or weaker or change as the story rolls on, becomes more and more evolved than um, what can start off as a little bit of unpleasant Vedana can rise to a great big unpleasant Vedana or suddenly switch. Go to pleasant Vedana. Mind's very fickle. So this is what the Buddha outlines first, and whenever uh, you've got sense organs operating and the Vedana arising, then when there's a tendency towards, uh, when there's an experience of pleasant Vedana at any of the sense doors, then there will be a tendency towards wanting to hold on to that. You know, it m might not even be conscious, but, but generally there's a tendency towards how can I experience more of that? How can I make this last longer? How can I hold on to it? How, how can I cling to it? Which is, which is already um, trying to hold and make static something which is not static, because life is just constantly flowing by one moment after another. And so as soon as we try to hold on to a pleasant moment, it's already too late, it's already past. And we're, we're already kind of living in the past and, and uh, creating a, an uncomfortable friction. And on the other side, when we experience unpleasant Vedana at any of the sense doors, there tends to be the tendency to want to push it away out of our existence, not experience it. How can I get away from this, run away from it, annihilate it, kill it? Right? It might be anything. It might be something as small as a mosquito, it might be something as big as divorce. <laughs> but it all starts you know, with very, very basic ways, just kind of a pleasant, unpleasant reaction. And then um, the whole tendency then to, to, for the mind to go out of balance on the side of uh, attraction and wanting to hold on, or the mind to go out of balance on the side of wanting to push away. You know, this is what the Buddha was saying. This is this is raga, and this is dosa, and this is burning, and this burns the jitta. This burns the heart, even in very small ways. You know, a small fire is still 
a little burn. And what really fuels both raga and dosa, attraction and aversion, is the basic delusion, misunderstanding, which is at the root, is at the root of even the other two roots. And this is a more subtle fire, based on identification, based on sense of self. So when the fires are not burning, then theoretically everything can just flow very nicely, quietly, and peacefully. But when there are fires burning with sense contact, then it's just inevitable. We start to experience the result of fire, which, as the Buddha say, is suffering. Pain, suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Now, the metaphor of fire is also an interesting one in other Buddhist teachings, other suttas where he's taught. Because fire, in many ways, is very much like craving. And the word for craving in Pali is also the word for fuel. So like the fuel that you put onto a fire, the fuel the, that you put into the stove, it's like this, uh, the craving that keeps feeding the fire, that keeps the fire that's burning us going. And then when you take away the fuel, what happens to the fire? You know? if, you, if you take away the fuel or you simply don't give it any more fuel, then the fire starts to die down. It doesn't immediately go out, but it starts to die down. The flames become smaller, the burning becomes less, the heat is less. And then it just goes down to warm embers and then finally cools completely. Now the word for Nibbana has the root of coolness. It is like being cooled. It is like a fire which has been blown out. It means to be extinguished in the same way you would extinguish a fire. And so this is a metaphor for the whole practice the craving is the fuel that goes into the fire, creates the fire, keeps it going. The Dhamma practice is that which cools the fire. And then when the fire totally goes out, where does the fire go? And this is how the Buddha would respond sometimes when people would ask him, well, what happens after an arhat dies? Well, very difficult to say in a way which the listener would understand and not misconceive it. But the Buddha was very good at similes. And so he would ask, well, what happens to a fire when the flame goes out? You've got a fire going, and then you stop feeding it fuel, the flames go out, the heat dissipates, fires out completely. Where did the fire go? Did it go north, south, east, west? Did it go into a different realm? Um, is it latent? What happened to the fire? So in many ways, it's, it's an apt simile for what happens. Say, well, what, what happens to a person after they become fully enlightened and there's no longer five khandhas operating after the death of a fully enlightened person? Well, like the fire has gone out, the burning has ceased. So then the Buddha continues on with the 
Dhamma talk. Because when a noble follower who has heard the truth sees us, he finds that disenchantment with the eye, he finds disenchantment in forms, he finds disenchantment in eye consciousness, he finds disenchantment in eye contact, and whether, whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises with eye contact as its condition, in that too he finds disenchantment. And I think this word disenchantment is, is a good translation. The Pali word is nibita. And we've tried different translations. But to be enchanted by something is to be under its spell. You know, like um, a witch would, would put it, uh, an enchantment on someone. Uh, or you, you're under a magic spell. So you kind of are very deluded and don't see things clearly. And so be, to be disenchanted is like waking up from the spell, the wicked witch. Disenchanted, and it has a, a positive connotation. It's like um, suddenly seeing things as they truly are. So that's what happens when you see fire is fire. And one becomes disenchanted with the ear and sounds, etc., and the, the nose and odors and smelling and tasting, and uh, the body, comfort and discomfort in the body. And one finds disenchantment in the mind, finds disenchantment with ideas, with mind consciousness, with mind contact, and whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, that arises from mind contact. And that too he finds disenchantment. And when he finds disenchantment, passion fades out. And with the fading of passion, he is liberated. When liberated, there is a knowledge that he is liberated. He understands. Birth is exhausted. The holy life has been lived out. What can be done has been done. Of this, there is no more beyond. Okay. I want to read you another translation of that as well. Because this is a phrase which re repeats and is heard again and again throughout the suttas. That was um, one translation. Another one here is Disenchanted, he becomes dispassionate, and through dispassion he is fully released. And with full release there is the knowledge fully released. One discerns that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task is done, there is nothing further for this world. So the first line is Nibidang Virajati. Disenchantment comes from seeing things as they truly are. And then a natural consequence of that is one becomes dispassionate. Now, the word passion in English is used in different ways. And especially in recent times, the word passion is considered um, to be a positive thing that's used in, in terms of being um, enthusiastic, motivated, highly motivated, um, following your heart, you know, follow, follow your passion, you know, wherever that leads, uh, and doing things passionately is a way to try to motivate people to do things. And we have that in, in the Dharma practice as well. There are... Um, there are times where we do need to motivate ourselves and bring out that sense of uh, enthusiasm and energy and motivation for practice. 
But in this context, when we translate it from um, raga as passion, then viraga means dispassion. And that has a cooling connotation. It's like uh, the big flames are going out. And then through dispassion, one is fully released. And it's what are we talking about with the flame? If you think of the flame being trapped by the fuel, and then when the flame goes out, it's like it, it's been released. It's it's been liberated, and the mind's a bit like that when the when the flame of of passion or anger or hatred that's burning from the craving suddenly goes out. It's like it's been released liberated. And the term for um, being released or liberated is vimuti. Good name for a monastery. Vimutasaming vimuti nyanang hoti with full release, with full liberation then the knowledge arises that one is liberated. It doesn't just happen and then you don't know all don't realize. Oh, I got enlightened. I didn't even realize it. <laughs> Shots. <laughs> or, or, you know, your teacher comes up to, hey, you got enlightened yesterday. Yeah, really? I didn't notice. <laughs> no, when, when, uh, when liberation happens, then the knowledge that one has been liberated uh, also comes as a consequence of that. And then kina jati, birth has ended. So the, right then and there, there is the understanding that that which leads to birth and death, this whole round of samsara, that's been cut off, that, that's ended. There's no more birth from that point on. Usitang brahmacharyang, the holy life or the spiritual life has reached its culmination. Katang karaniyang, the task is done. There is, um, what has needed to be done has been done. And a lot of spiritual practices like that, it's just, just, this is what needs to be done. And it's just a matter of getting in there and, and doing it. And when it's finished, then it's like, you can look back and say, what needed to be done has been done. And then, naparang itatayati para pajanati. There is nothing further for this world, or there is, um, there is nothing further to do in terms of spiritual practice. That's it. So when one uh, achieves full enlightenment of arhanship, that that is the culmination, that is the the ultimate. So then, as the Buddha was giving the sermon, giving this Dhamma talk, then one by one, all 1,000 of the listeners went through this process because as you listen to a Dhamma talk, you can reflect as you go. And the way the Buddha was giving the Dhamma talk, he was doing it in a repetitive way so that at each of the sense doors, uh, the listeners could reflect seeing, eye contact, consciousness, Vedana, etc. And, and Raga, Dosa, and Moha. And, and with each of the sense organs then, he would go through that and repeat this phrase. And so it was like a guided meditation. And because they had probably a very solid foundation already, they probably, they might have had pretty good samadhi already. They might have had pretty good meditation already from their years of spiritual practice. They were clearly all extremely dedicated to be living out there uh, naked in the forest. 
Uh, and, you know, around Bodh Gaya, Gaya in the wintertime in India, it gets pretty cold. So they were all extremely dedicated. So they had a very solid foundation. And so the Buddha didn't need to, to kind of lead a whole lot up to this. He just gave them the, the essence of the wisdom teachings. And they understood then very quickly. And so by the end of the talk, all 1,000 of them were fully enlightened arhats. So, as a correlation, there's, uh, there's what? There's 20 of us? Uh, just Maybe just with a show of hands? Can we just, can we just you know, it's not bragging because there's no sense of self left, but maybe just with a show of hands, all those who have been fully enlightened in the process of hearing this Dhamma talk, just... Um, this is not the end of the story. It's kind of the climax. But then, with that, then the Buddha uh, said, okay, that was, that was, this was still only a few months after the Buddha was enlightened. So things were starting to happen pretty quickly. And then he said, okay, well, all of it, let's walk to the capital city of Rajagaha, modern-day Rajgir. And uh, so they did. And, you know, there's more than a thousand of them. Did they get dressed? What's that? Did they get dressed? <laughs> you know, it doesn't really say in the story. It's been a long time since I've read the story. So I'm a bit foggy in some of the details. You have to forgive me, but at least the Buddha was dressed. And he was in front, so he kind of hid the others. <laughs> So they're all walking en masse, you know, this big crowd of bald guys. And they're all walking toward the, the capital. And so word was spreading ahead of time uh, to the capital city. Something's happening. All of these uh, spiritual wanderers are headed our way. And um, so the king of Rajagaha which was the capital city of the, um, the kind of superpower of Magadha. Uh, he said, well, this is a highly auspicious occasion. We better go out there and meet him. We'll make a big, huge ceremony around it. And so he and pretty much the whole town then went out uh, to meet them uh, before they came up to the gates of the city. And uh, as they were meeting there, then the king saw the Kasapa brothers, and especially the, the lead brother, Kasapa. And then he saw the Buddha, and the Buddha, you know, wasn't well known at this point, and probably not known at all. And the king was unsure. Now, you know, Kasapa's lost his hair, you know, it's probably not chemotherapy, something's going on here. Uh, and he wasn't sure, now has Kasapa become the Buddha's disciple, or has the Buddha become Kasapa's disciple? And so um, the lead Kasapa brother could see that um, the king was a bit confused. So just to clarify things, then he got down on the ground and bowed three times to the Buddha. And so then the king knew, and everyone knew from that point on that, oh, wow, this is very amazing that all of these naked matted hair ascetics have suddenly converted to become disciples of this wandering ascetic Gotama. Uh, it's pretty auspicious. And uh, so then they invited them all into the city. And so from that point on, um, the roots of what we call Buddhism well, really started to 
to gather some momentum in the Ganges Valley there. And, uh, and with, with all of those Kasapa disciples, all of them fully enlightened, as a, as a core for the, for the Sangha, then, um, well, first of all, they did great things for the garment industry. <laughs> because you needed to clothe and find robes for all of these thousand guys. And so, so that helped the economy. <laughs> Second benefit was that they formed the, the solid core of the Sangha. And then from that point on, you know, each of them individually was qualified to teach the Dhamma and be an example of the Dhamma. And so they then could go off in, in their separate directions. So this is uh, the brief story of, uh, of the third discourse of the Buddha called the Fire Sermon. After this for your reflection. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And it is not without forethought that I have given this talk tonight. Um, for the simple reason that everything is best experienced firsthand rather than simply hearing it from another. So when it comes to experiencing the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion in our own heart, then it's good to have a real living simile to understand. And it just happens to be that we have a huge pile of brush out there that's been neatly gathered. I'm and naked, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have volunteers to play the various parts. Some rocks on it make a sauna. I'll get naked for that. That's, that's what we're worried about. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, uh, I thought as be before we go out there and light that big pile of brush. I thought that it might be a nice way to end this part of the retreat, this formal part of the retreat, the last full day, by if everyone gets a piece of paper and just write on it something that you want to burn up. <laughs> uh <-huh>. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. hey, if you want to throw my books on that fire, it's your choice. Uh, it's probably a karma that leads to rebirth in hell, but... It's a free country. <laughs> so, if, do we have enough uh, blank paper? You, can we use the same size we've been using, or you want something bigger? Oh, some people might need it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Right, so. uh, if, we, uh, if we could just pass out a piece of paper to everybody, and then have enough writing utensils, okay. pens or, or pencils. Okay, writing utensils. And then people just write, you know, whatever it is that you want to burn up. And then once we light the fire, you know, we'll throw it in. That will be a nice uh, symbolic gesture. Uh, do you like puns? Huh? Do you like puns? <laughs> Kitty corner from Common Ground where we go to be disenchanted is the hexagon bar. 
hex a gun. Uh, Take yeah, out hexes, like, kind of yeah, like, like the Chinese. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Okay. However, we'll still maintain noble silence. <laughs> so that, so that, um, so we can experience the realities of fire worship and why uh, it is conducive to uh, samadhi. And we can also ex reflect on the metaphor of fire and tanha, craving as fuel, and the extinguishment of fire and heat, which is nibbana, the ultimate cooling. So, uh, uh, even though this, even if you'd like to go down and be around the fire, I'd still ask everyone to maintain noble silence all the way through tonight. Tomorrow morning, then, I'd like to start the day an hour later so that we have the wake-up gong happening at 5.30. Uh, so if people wish to stay up a bit later, um, worshiping the fire or reflecting on that or shaving off your dreadlocks, throwing them into the water, then uh, that opportunity is there. But I'd like to, everyone to keep noble silence until tomorrow morning after breakfast. We'll come together and then as a group in a skillful way, then we'll, we'll end noble silence together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.